I was called to ministry when I was 16, and I didn't come here until I was 27 in 2005, so I had a good decade there in between to kind of come up with what I thought it would be like to be a pastor. You know, what I, what I thought the, the whole experience would be, and, and I, I had some assumptions, some of them were spot on, some of them were kind of unfounded, and one that I had in the back of my mind, I don't know how often I haven't really thought about it, but I assumed just somewhere back here that I'd be the pastor of an old church with an old building, and the building would contain some secrets, and probably I would discover them. I mean, not exactly like on National Treasure when they go in through the crypt into the, the big chamber full of gold, but sort of like that. And the first time, I confess, the first time I pulled in with Mike Williams into this parking lot, I thought, oh yeah, look at this place. There's some stuff here. And so I had my eyes open. I've had my eyes open now for 13 years, and I think, I think I have found it. Now, you've got to know where to look with this stuff. And the secret is over here on the lectern, if you take this piece of lovely carpet off, I guess this carpet is here so that uh, the mic doesn't pick up all the rattling and the, you know, that kind of thing. But under this piece of carpet, there is an ancient letter taped down to the lectern. And I know it's ancient because the paper is yellowed and because it was typed on a typewriter. So... If you look carefully at the note, you can see there are clues here of some kind. What, what it is, it's the text of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But there are also some markings on it. At the end, it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And someone has scratched out that and ever at the end. So that's a clue. And the other one is a little earlier, where it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Debts and debtors are both double underlined. That also is a clue regarding this mystery. But then I think I solved the mystery. It only took me like 15 seconds. I think what happened was that sometime, maybe... During the, the 70s or the 80s, it's hard, to, it's hard to tell. It looks like a manual, not an electric typewriter. Somebody must have said the wrong word while leading the prayer. And you know if the leader says trespasses and the congregation says debts, that cancels out the whole thing and God doesn't hear it. So someone said, I'll take care of this. And then they, and then they taped it down. But I thought, you know, maybe I should go look at the old lectern and pulpit because this is a new sanctuary from the 60s the old sanctuary furnishings are still in the chapel on the other side of the building and on the pulpit there is another message and this one's not taped down it's engraved right in there but but it's it's not like in remembrance of me on the front of the altar for you all to see no this is a message just for the preacher a secret message and it says Sir, we would see Jesus. That's a clue. Now there's a mystery here. We're going to solve it today. Sir, we would see Jesus. If you were paying attention while Terry was reading, you know where it comes from. John chapter 12. And you know why that message would be there not for the congregation, but for the preacher. 
And I think about all the men who stood behind that pulpit over the decades and preached the gospel every week seeing that inscription. That's so cool. It's a reminder. Hey, you, preacher. These people who are gathered here, they're not gathered to hear you. They're not gathered to hear how funny you are or how eloquent or how how full of knowledge. No, they're here to see Jesus. And if the message and the service as a whole doesn't lift up Jesus for them, doesn't matter what else happens, it has failed. When I was in seminary and, and, and in Bible college before that, there was this awesome old guy, Wilbur Welch. He was, I think he was the first uh, president of the, of the Grand Rapids Baptist College. And, and years, decades before there was even, before the, the internet was a gleam in Al Gore's eye, this guy went by WWW. And he would wander around campus and tell you if, like, your trench coat belt was coming out or something. And, hey, you, fix that up. And he would just impart wisdom. And once a year, he'd come into a preaching class. And I was there for nine years. And he would come in, and he'd say the same thing. And it would build up to, Sir, we would see Jesus. Remember that when you step in behind the pulpit. And oftentimes, when there's a revival meeting, that'll be the first night. Someone will get up and preach, Sir, we would see Jesus. So that's what it is, but there's still a mystery. There's still more to dig into. And it's possible to read that text or even preach that text and miss the point. So the first thing you want to do is look at the context. context. Okay, yeah, the context and the context and the context. It can be pull just one piece of one verse out and yank it out of its scriptural context. And so we want to look at what's going on here in John chapter 12. What we saw in John chapter 11 just a little while ago was the healing, or rather the raising, of Lazarus from the dead. He said in John's gospel, that is kind of the last straw for Jesus' enemies. That's it. They are going to see him dead. And for his followers, this gets them completely amped up. In fact, when we're reading about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday... In John, it tells us the reason the crowds came was because they heard about the raising of Lazarus. It was fresh on their minds. Bethany is just a, a stone's throw away. You can see it from Jerusalem. And so they heard that this had happened and they came out to see him because Jesus didn't raise him with CPR. He didn't raise him with magic. He raised him by saying with a voice of authority, a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus stood and came out bound in the bedclothes and then he was loosed. What a picture of what Jesus does for us, right? Apart from Christ, that's us. He was, he was dead for days. He was, he stinketh in the King James. He was starting to decompose. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. You see, when we're apart from Christ in our sins, we don't need a little medicine that I can take and it amps me up a little bit. There, Jesus has supercharged my life. No, 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 I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. And I need him to open the tomb and say, Zach, come out. Not anything I'm doing. Jesus does it. He raises us from the dead. And everyone's talking about it, especially Jesus' enemies. We see that in the last verse of chapter 11. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is it. If everyone is honor-bound now, if you see Jesus... You say something. You tell someone. Because we are going to put an end to this. If this happened and it was me, I would be tempted to leave town. 
right? Remember, Jesus had been in Perea after there was an attempt to stone him in Jerusalem. When he heard Lazarus was sick, they came back to the area, to Bethany. And now they're out to get him. Everyone knows it's common knowledge, but Jesus doesn't go back to Perea. He doesn't go up to Galilee, to Nazareth and hide out, lay low. No, he gets on the foal of a donkey and walks with great fanfare right through the very gate that everyone knew the Messiah would enter Jerusalem through. This is a a prophecy from way, way back. Everyone said, he's doing it. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He did it at the most inopportune time, if you're thinking about his safety, but he did it. It's interesting to me when we start talking about fulfilling prophecies, how Christians have a tendency, and I remember trying to remember a lot of these, these numbers as well. We become kind of amateur statisticians. There's all these figures of what are the odds that someone would just happen to fulfill all 300 and whatever prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And, and there are many that would be outside of an ordinary person's power. Born in Bethlehem, you don't choose where to be born, right? Flight to Egypt when he was an infant, all these things. But once he starts his ministry, many of these don't factor in to the odds because it's not happening by chance. It's happening by choice. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling messianic prophecies and how he does it tells us something about who he's claiming to be. Right now he's showing the leaders of Israel, I call the shots. This is not your timetable. My father has set the timetable for how I will be revealed as the Messiah and how I will win the victory over death and sin. His hour has come. Remember that? All the way back, we looked at the first, uh, the first miracle of the Gospel of John, the wedding in Cana. He said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And then he had all this stuff about light and darkness and well, it is still light. I'm with you. All that comes back together again here as well. We've been able to follow that, that thread through the Gospel of John. His hour has come. So in defiance of their order, Rested, that everybody be on the lookout for him. He comes. They don't, by the way, the chief priests, the scribes, they don't want to do this during Passover. This is a powder keg. They, they put out the word. They put out the threat. Maybe he'll stay away. We can deal with him later. But if he does come in, we're going to nip it in the bud before this is a huge problem. Now, it's a perfect time for Jesus to come in from a prophetic and messianic point of view. Passover is when they think about the innocent lamb that was killed and the blood painted onto the lentils and the doorposts so that the the angel of death would pass over the house. Obviously, Jesus is coming and he is going to fulfill that. Every year, a Passover lamb in each household was put to death. Jesus would come to be that Passover lamb once for all. So we don't need to do this every year. We can instead celebrate the once for all sacrifice of our Passover lamb. But in another way, it was perfect from the point of view. They're thinking about a political Messiah. They're thinking about a Messiah who will come and bring freedom from Rome, freedom from tyranny. We know this because Passover is when you're thinking about the Exodus, right? The Exodus when Israel was oppressed by a foreign nation, Egypt, And when one man, anointed by God, came, had miraculous abilities, and saved them and led them into freedom. Now they are oppressed by a different foreign nation. 
And one man with miraculous powers who's just shown he has power over life and death is riding in in this very conspicuous way, saying, I'm the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. One man anointed by God, and they are ready for him to deliver them. But from their point of view, he may as well have, even though he's on a donkey, an animal of peace, he may as well have a banner of war in one hand and an AK-47 in the other. They see him, and that's, what, that's why they're so excited. How do we know? Well, we know because they're waving palm branches. Palm is a symbol of military victory. It goes back about a century or more, actually, before Christ, the, the Maccabean Revolution, the Hasmonean Dynasty, when there were Greeks oppressing Israel, and they won their freedom for a hundred years, and when those, those soldiers came riding in, in victory into Jerusalem, they waved palm branches. You go there today to Israel, palm branches everything. They're on the coins. They're a symbol of political and military dominance and freedom and victory. And as they wave them, they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's from Psalm 118, by the way. If you open up to Psalm 118, if you're quick, otherwise just listen. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna in the Hebrew. Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Or save, I beseech thee in the King James. Or I'm begging you, save, save us. That's what they're saying when they shout, Hosanna. But what kind of salvation do they want? Political, most of them. They want Jesus to be their hero who rides in and vanquishes their enemies. They continue quoting from Psalm 118. Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting that as well. And blessed is the son of David, this messianic, kingly title for Jesus. And this is why they're so excited. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. There's nothing he can't do. And the crowd following him from Bethany is behind him. And the crowd anticipating him in Jerusalem comes out and they meet in the middle. And the scribes and chief priests and Pharisees stand at a distance and go, oh no. Everything we've tried is just making it worse. Everything we've tried has made this problem foment and grow. Look now, the whole world is following him. You see, we are gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. Verse 19. The whole world. That seems a bit of a stretch until we get to the rest of chapter 12 and we start seeing people from outside of Israel coming to Jesus. That's where we finally get to Lord or Sir. Either way, we would see Jesus. Because there are Greeks. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These are not Semitic Jews who happen to speak Greek. I've heard that taught. Totally different word for that. Hellenistis. Yeah, you don't know. We'll say that. Uh, and this is a different one. This is the word Hellene. It just means Greek people. They're Gentiles. They're, they're up to worship God, the true God, at the temple. So they may be proselytes to Judaism, but they're from a different people. And they're seeking Jesus now, too. They go to Philip because this guy's got a very Greek name. They're undoubtedly speaking Greek. And they say, we'd like a face-to-face. We'd like to meet Jesus. We'd like to see Jesus. What exactly is driving them? Well, if we can believe the Bible, and when it gives us generalizations, we just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read, for Jews demand signs, 
and Greeks seek wisdom. So these Greeks, they're perhaps seeking wisdom. Greeks love philosophy in the, in the Old Testament, New Testament world, right? Philosophy, what does that mean at its core? Philia, love, Sophia, wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. They love wisdom. Remember in Acts 17, we've got um, the, the uh, Mars Hill there. And on Mars Hill, we see that all sorts of great minds of Greek thought come together. We're told, quote, they do nothing all day but listen to and discuss the latest ideas. Sounds a lot like today on the internet, if you had a lot of arguing. So we've got people who are obsessed with the new and wisdom and, and seeking truth, and apparently they'd sought through all the latest stuff in the Greek world and found it empty, so they came to the temple to worship this God who created everything, and while there, they heard Jesus was there, and they wanted to see him as well. Sir, we would see Jesus. And so Jesus we're told, goes and hides from them. He hides from them. Not only from these Greeks, but from everybody. And strangely, the next time Jesus appears publicly in the Gospel of John is when he's publicly being nailed to a cross. Not very seeker-sensitive of him. He could have taken advantage of this opportunity to, to talk to some people, press the flesh, kiss some babies. But his hour has come. And now, even under the threat of death, even with this arrest warrant hanging over his head, which is ultimately a death warrant, he is going to be glorified. i got to imagine the disciples were amped about that. Okay, it's happening. This is now when everything turns around. This is what we'll look back to and say, this is when Rome fell and Israel rose out of the ashes. And they're allowed to think that for about two seconds before Jesus comes in with a big bummer of a statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Drop a seed into the ground, it dies, but then it bears fruit. If you don't drop it, it just it remains, it remains all alone. Now, there are those critics of the Bible, very hard-hearted, and I would argue thick-headed, who would look at a passage like this and have looked at this passage and said, well, see, you can't trust the Bible. It doesn't even understand science. When you plant a seed, it doesn't die. And they're right. It doesn't technically die. And, get this, a watch pot will eventually boil. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's possible Jesus is not teaching botany here, but something far, far more important. He's teaching metaphorically, poetically, just like you, you would put a seed into the ground and up comes great life. The Son of Man will be put into the heart of the earth, into the tomb, and there will be great fruit. And, and, and he's absolutely right. You take an acorn and plant it. If it starts to grow, you come back in a couple years as a sapling. Okay, show me that acorn. You can't. It's life as an acorn is over. It has begun, and now it's bearing fruit. Now there's more acorn. So Jesus is saying... I will lay down my life so that you will have life. Because if he doesn't, he remains alone, the only righteous one who can stand before God. But if he dies for our justification and rises again, our sins are forgiven by grace through faith, and he bears much fruit. Jesus continues this sort of upbeat diatribe when he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Many people have read this and said, well, I must be saved. I sure hate my life. Hate my job. My boss is a jerk. My boyfriend's a deadbeat. My car never starts. Clearly, this is not what Jesus is teaching. We're taught in the scriptures to be content in all situations, even persecution. Rather, this is kind of a tricky word to, to even translate. It's got different shades and different meanings at different times. Miseo, it's where you get the word misogynist from hate and women, right? There's a misogynist, a guy who hates women. So a misogynist is a guy like, I see women, I punch them in the nose. No, no, no. It's a guy who always prefers men, who looks down at women. It's a guy, it's a guy who, who, if there's a job opening and there's two, he's giving it to the male candidate. That's the misogynist, right? And, and, and that's not a one for one, but it helps color this understanding of this word, I think. Same word that Jesus uses when he says uh, in Luke 14, unless you hate your mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister, you cannot be my disciple. And people have pointed at that and said, wow, he was a crazy cult leader. You've got to understand the coloring of this word. So it comes down to if it's between your family on earth and, and peace with them or following your heavenly father, your creator and savior, you go with him. Otherwise, you're not my disciple. In the same way, here, if it's down to loving this life here and now, loving the name you're building for yourself and the pile of stuff that you're gathering together and the gratifications and, and good times that you're having, if it's down to that or giving your life up for Jesus and following Jesus, if you're his disciple, you will not choose the best now. You will not choose this life. You will choose to follow him even to Calvary. We, we see here the, I'm giving, I'm sorry, I'm throwing so much Greek at you. I don't, I, I'm, I'm really into it this year. But there's a word you know, he, he, a couple words you know, for life. When he says, save your life and you will lose it, lose your life for my sake and you find it. The word life isn't zoe, which is where we get zoology, right, or zoo, just general life, like all kinds of life. No, 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 it's psuche, which is where we get our word psyche. It means self, soul, life. Your particular life, yourself. And so if you spend your whole life finding yourself, you'll lose it. You spend your whole life finding what makes me happy, what, what makes me gratified, who, who, what, what really is, is best for me. You might find yourself, but ultimately you lose your soul. But if instead you spend your life seeking God, chasing God, looking to Christ, you'll find Him and you'll find yourself as well, you'll find your identity in him. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And it's even more poignant when we remember that he was killed on the mission field, bringing the gospel to people who didn't have it. And this connects up with those Greeks as they come to Jesus and they say, or they come to Philip and say, We would see Jesus. And, and Jesus tells his disciples, all this stuff, they'll see me lifted up, the Son of Man lifted up, in order to follow me, you must hate your life, you must, you must follow me wherever I go, keep your life to eternal life, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Wherever we see this teaching of save your life and you will lose it, lose your life for my sake and you'll find it, it's always paired with the teaching that if you'll be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. So where am I following him if I'm carrying a cross? Where am I following him if he's just ridden into Jerusalem? We're following him to Calvary. 
We're following him to where we would lose our life in him and with him and find him and find eternal life. And then he says, now is my soul troubled. And we think, how? Jesus, it's Palm Sunday. Isn't this an exciting thing for you? You're riding in. Everyone's making a big deal out of you. They're all waving their... They put their coats down on the road so that the donkey would have a softer surface to walk on. People are loving Jesus, and yet his soul is troubled. He says, my soul's troubled after he gets to Jerusalem, and before he looks down at the city and he weeps over it. And says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to to gather you like a, a hen gathers its chicks under its wings. How can he be troubled like this? On Palm Sunday, we're, we're seeing him taking a step toward our salvation, yes, but Jesus knows, and he alone seems to recognize that that is a step toward death on a cross. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is what we read about in Revelation 12, a war in heaven, and Satan was cast down, that great dragon, that deceiver. He was cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John, who wrote this, knows that we will tend like Peter to try and go away from the cross because it's uncomfortable. And that there would be people who would say, well, Jesus was talking about when he's lifted up in resurrection. He's lifted up from the tomb. That must be what he's talking about. That's how he draws us to himself. Or maybe when he was lifted up in the ascension. He went up into the sky and he drew us all to himself. No, John wants to make sure you don't, know, don't, you don't go that route. Make that mistake. And so he says, Jesus said this to describe the kind of death that he would die. He was showing what kind of death he was going to die. And that's the answer. That's the only answer that these Greeks get and that the disciples get as they come to Jesus and say, are you going to meet with them? Is this where we go international and start building our coalition against the Romans? And it's sadly ironic, perhaps, from our point of view, that these Greeks never really get to see Jesus. If they do see him, they see him when he's hanging on a cross a couple a week later here on, on Good Friday. But Jesus is saying if they want to see the living Christ, if they want to encounter the living Christ, they have to do it through the dying Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 1. We read, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Greeks and Gentiles usually used interchangeably in the New Testament. Why a stumbling block? Why foolishness? Because it's backwards. It's a mystery. And that's a mystery that we find in every faithful Christian church. It's not hidden under the crypts or under the carpet over here. No, it's in the scriptures that Jesus died so that we might live. It trips us up until he opens our eyes. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. And yet he shows us, he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In, in uh, John 10, 16... Jesus talks about how he has other sheep, not of this flock. That's us. That's us, the Greeks, the Gentiles. We are grafted into that tree that grows up out of Jesus' great sacrifice. We are grafted in. What a great gift that we can be part of what Christ was doing here. 
We are these Greeks, in a sense, who come and say, hey, we'd see Jesus. We like new ideas. Let's, let's consider this guy. And we're told the only way in is through this cross. The only way to encounter him is at the foot of a dying, bleeding man. Now, Aaron and I, before, before we had a child, we, we would often invite people over. We still are trying to do this uh, a bit, have people over to our homes. We like to have fellowship with people. We like to, to share time together, but mostly we like that it makes us clean up our house because you have to continue that absolute illusion that this is how you actually live your life. And, and when people come over, especially for the first time, what do you do? Show them around your house. They don't care, but you're like, I cleaned all these rooms. Darn it, you're going to look in all these rooms. And when I was first here, Aaron and I had an office we shared on the first floor of a house, and I would love to bring people in, because I had been for years acquiring this vast collection of crosses from all different places, all different traditions, all different kinds. It's kind of like, remember that scene in The, the Omen when they open the door, and there's all these, and they're like, oh, and they step back. And, and unbelievers would be a little bit weirded out by me, but Baptists even more so. Because amongst those crosses are many that have the corpus of Christ on them. They're not the empty cross you, you usually see in a Protestant church. And people say, oh, how dare you have that? What does it mean? Are you a secret Vatican operative? And say, no, this isn't for, to be venerated. This isn't something that we worship. No, this is a reminder. This is why this is so incredible to me. People say, what, you still think Jesus is on the cross? No, and I still don't think Aaron and I are saying our wedding vows. It's a nice reminder to have a picture of that, though. It's a reminder that, that if I am tempted to sin, and I can look, whether it's a cross, just a bare cross, or whatever a reminder that Christ died for me, He suffered and died because of my sin, paying for my sin. That reminder defines who I am. I lose my life and find it in Him. For me, it's a way that kind of sums up John 3.16 to look at a cross, particularly one that, that has a depiction of Christ dying. Christ became human. He can be depicted in, in paintings and things. We don't have that Puritan view that He can't be. But it doesn't really help just to see it. Aaron and I grew up in, in Bay City, which is like 98.9 or something percent Polish Catholic. And there were a lot of very, very uh, faithful and devout uh, Catholic Christians that, that were in, in, in that uh, population, but there were also a lot of cultural Catholics. And there, you'd go into a lot of friends' houses, they'd have the crucifix everywhere. I didn't mean anything. They'd see it, but they'd, they'd take the name of the Lord Jesus in vain, like a four-letter curse word, no problem. They'd, they'd sin all they wanted right there. It didn't mean anything. They'd see it, it, to see without encountering is of no help. And these Greeks, you know, they wanted to encounter Jesus. It said, sir, we would see Jesus. When you were a kid, did you ever get a new toy? Your brother or sister says, hey, can I see that? You go, see it. Right? So you see. Philip could have done the same thing. Oh, you would see Jesus? That guy right there. You know, white robe, blue sash, that guy. But they wanted to encounter Jesus. And, and to see him without encountering him is of no use. I think this is why we tend to encounter him in our suffering. I've never known anyone who went in and was given a promotion and a raise and walked out going, whoa, I need to get right with God. Wow. I've never known anyone who went to it, got a physical and was told, my goodness, everything looks like someone 20 years younger than you. 
It's wonderful. And I said, I got to get on the narrow path that leads to life. Start scratching the scriptures. But I just heard this past week about someone who found out that their heart was failing and began searching the scriptures and found Jesus. We find him in our suffering. We find him in his suffering. If you would encounter the living Christ, you will find him in the dying Christ. This is what Luther called the theology of the cross. But when Jesus said this stuff, I'm going to be lifted up. The Son of Man will draw all people to himself. Look how fickle the crowds already are. He said this to show what kind of death he's going to die. And the crowd answered, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, they know the Son of Man is the Messiah from the book of Daniel. They were just, Hosanna, 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 you're the guy, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they say, wait, it's not you, who is it? Just tell me, I don't care. Point me in the right direction. They're so very fickle. And we tend to be that as well. This same crowd, the whole world was going after him, and in just a few days, the whole world will be going after him, shouting, crucify. And so Jesus leaves. After saying all this about light and darkness, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, for darkness will overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become children of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. What do we sing? This little light of mine, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Well, Jesus is going to go hide his light for a time under a bushel. And, and he's not doing it because he doesn't want people to come to the light. He's doing it because he does not want them to think they can come to the light without going through the darkness, without finding him in his death and suffering. People were ready to follow him as long as it was all smiles and giggles and free fish and bread and hosanna and waving the palm branches. But he wants those disciples who will follow him with a cross on their back, up to Calvary. And he weeps when he looks at Jerusalem because while they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, save, we pray, save. They want him to save them, but they're not thinking of the cost. Not to him, and they're not counting the cost for them. They're quoting part of Psalm 118, but just two verses earlier, we read, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He must be rejected and put to death. He must be mocked and beaten and endure it for us. And as we're about to enter into Holy Week, let me just implore you, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't, don't get ahead. And many people, I think, if they're, if they're not incredibly uh, devout Christians, this becomes a great temptation. If they're people who kind of skip in and out of church, Easter's always a day they come, and it's all smiles. Maybe you can get them to come to the stack of pancakes night on Shrove Tuesday, right? But not so much the next night when we're putting ashes on our heads and remembering we come from dust, and to dust we will return. Maybe they'll come back for Palm Sunday and wave the, the branch, and they won't think about Jesus again until Easter morning when it's all bunnies and Cadbury eggs, and He is risen, and joy. Jesus is saying, listen, you must come through the darkness in order to find the light. You must find the living Christ in the dying Christ. Only those who will lose their life and take up their cross and follow me will find 
Palm Sunday, it's a time of celebration, but it's bittersweet celebration. It's a door into Holy Week. And Holy Week is the valley of the shadow of death. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, but we still walk through it. And I believe that if we try to find him only in these high points, only in the celebrations and the happy times, he will hide himself from us as well. I think of the, the scene in The Passion of the Christ. Well, to me, one of the most poignant moments in the film when it's almost like a Jesus eye view carrying the cross down the Via Della Rosa, and it cuts quickly back and forth between that, the people jeering and mocking and throwing things at him, and him on the back of the donkey, and people shouting hosannas. And I remember I around that a few times and said, oh, there are some of the same faces, and maybe that is a very, very good thing for us to remember. In two chapters, Jesus is going to say to this very same Philip, don't you know me? Still, don't you know me? Because he is going to want to come to Jesus without the cross. Peter does the same thing. When Jesus says, hey, blessed are you. You've had things revealed to you by God, not by men. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Just a moment later, he's going to say, I, let me trust you with something. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'll be put to death. I'll be tried and mocked and, and beaten. And then on the third day, I'll rise again. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. We can find a better way. That'll never happen. We can go around the cross. And he rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. We have to go to the cross to find Jesus. We find him in his death and in his resurrection. And this week being Holy Week, I really urge you, if you can, to join us on Thursday at Mount Hope Presbyterian on Jolly Road where we'll have a service remembering that Last Supper and the commandment to love one another. And on Friday, right here at 7 p.m., where we remember Jesus' death. And let me tell you, I'm uncomfortable with these. I'm something in my personality. I don't like walking into a service in silence and sadness, knowing we're going to walk out in silence and sadness and contemplation. I'd like to start in the silence and sadness. Let's build up to, all right, he is risen and we'll leave all amped up. Not wait a whole nother day, a whole day more before we can together say he is risen. But it's important. It's important to remember that Jesus went through the darkness and that he said, you will follow me where I am. You will also be if you will be my disciples. Sir, we will see Jesus. Galatians 6 says, let me boast in nothing but in the death of Christ. Because in Christ's crucifixion, I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. That is, I think, the mystery that we find right here in Judson Baptist Church, over there, engraved on the pulpit in the chapel. We would see Jesus? Well, we will see Him then on a cross. We will see Him laying down His life. We will see Him humbling Himself and being subject to death, even death on a cross. And then, on the third day, we will see Him rise again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this strange story of these, these Gentiles who blip in and out of the gospel so quickly and yet cause us to stop and see ourselves in it. Lord, we would see you in the flesh without being crucified to our sins, without dying to sin and dying to self and rising anew in you. We would, we would see you the way the, the Greeks sought out new ideas and wisdom. 
as if we were in control. We thank you for the words of Jesus that we must come to you when you are lifted up. And Lord, we are so thankful that having seen you lifted up on the cross, we will see you lifted up in glory on the last day, coming back for your own. Lord, we thank you that the once-for-all sacrifice is behind us. And Lord, as we commemorate and remember it, as we thank you for it, as we mourn that it was necessary, may we continually be comforted that you have provided it because you love us and you will never leave us or forsake us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.